Um, we're hitting on a topic today, ironically, that is a topic I always try to find excuses to jump into. So if you could follow me around for the last 20 years, as I would talk in any kind of authoritative capacity about scripture or sermons or anything like that, whether it was a small group, uh, literally a small group the first year I was a Christian in Clemson, um, really pursuing the Lord and, and trying to pull that together, or in even today when I go to teach and I somehow take a message somebody wanted on, on a theology of justice and without even realizing it, I spend a half hour talking about joy. The topic of, of joy and Christian happiness is, is one that has dominated me. And it, it's, it's what I always am wanting to talk about because for me, uh, it's maybe the, the, one, of the, one of the top two or three areas of the greatest confusion that I experienced growing up um, in churches and around Christians. And I think unless we get this sorted out, we, we really have a hard time understanding what our relationship with God looks like, should look like, what it's really aimed at, and how to interact with people outside the church that are kind of just normal humans. Um, we've done something really, really weird and we've made this word happiness a really out of bounds taboo word in the Christian church. And I think the, the biggest reason is simply this. <clears throat> um, it's, it's a modern, well, I'll save that. I'll, I'll get into kind of why we've done it, but here's the, here's the thing that we, we have done it. We've made happiness a bad word. I, I remember giving a sermon one time and I was like, hey, we should pursue God because um, we're gonna, it's gonna, it's the best, I mean, just from a practical standpoint, it's the best gamble for like finding happiness and fulfillment in life. And I drew it on a whiteboard and I had all these college kids and it was, it was early on when I was beginning to preach and I was like, see, we've, we pursue God and then see this arrow comes around and makes us happy and it just, and then it makes us wanna pursue God even more and then we're even happier and pursue God even more and even happier and you see this circle and I'm like drawing it on the whiteboard round and round and I was so proud of myself. I was like, this, this, this sermon really makes sense. And then this Biola student came up to me afterwards and was like, hey, I'm just checking to make sure I heard you right. Did you say that our motivation in pursuing God is happiness? And the way he said it just made me really afraid because Christians, man, they can scare you. <laughs> they can really, really scare you with the tone. And, and when, they, when they act like you're doing something wrong, you've, you know what I mean? Like Christians can really make you feel like you're, you're wrong. And so I was just like, looking at the guy, I'm like, no, of course, of course I wasn't saying that. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, just, was I, is that, what? And I was just really confused. And then for like a year, I tried really hard not to talk about happiness because I didn't want to have that experience with a Christian again. Um, but so here's the deal. H happiness whether you know it or not, man, it is, it is a out-of-bounds word, and that's, that's how you've experienced it. I would, st I would stake my fortune on it. I've got a real big fortune. <laughs> um, I'd stake my fortune on it. And, and I think what's really interesting is this. We think that our experience, because it's all we've ever experienced, is, is what everyone has always experienced before us and will experience after us. Um, I was hearing a story this week of someone on staff talking to one of the former interns that lives in Bend, and uh, U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday came on the radio, and they were like, ah, oh, this song, and the former intern said, ooh, is that the Killers? You get, what? You guys don't get that? This is U2. Anyone know who U2 is? Sunday, bloody Sunday, right? My whole, my whole growing up is, is, is contained in that one song. Like my, all of my childhood, it's like, it's like the Kevin Bacon game, Six Degrees of Separation, right? You can touch every experience in my, my life through Sunday, bloody Sunday somehow, like a couple degrees of separation. But so it, it's so crazy to think someone would not know like the, the most famous U2 song Right? Because that was like such a part of our generation. Yet a generation later, like that's not. 
That's not a part of the generation. And they have certain things. And my parents' generation, they have certain stories or triggers or things they remember that just everybody would know. And it's like, no, everybody doesn't know it. And so you kind of live in a, in a day and age and a time that you think is ubiquitous, right? Or holds steady and it doesn't. And what I'm saying is we think because we see happiness through such skeptical lenses in the church in America today or we have kind of recently, we assume that that's the way it's always been. Jesus must have been against happiness. This is actually probably like what he talked about all the time. You guys shouldn't be happy. Like we begin to extrapolate and think that that's the way it's always been. And, and what I really am wanting to do today, because I, I get to talk about my favorite subject because that's actually what's up in our sermon series, is I want to make an argument once and for all that dispels with that myth. I want to make an argument once and for all. So I'm going to read you a couple quotes. Here's my main point. The main point is our happiness is synonymous with our joy, and it is a central matter of concern, not only in our thinking, but in our Christian imagination. Um, our happiness is synonymous with our joy, and it's a central matter of concern, not only in our human thinking. Pascal says, all men seek happiness. Even the one that commits suicide does it because somehow he or she thinks that that's what's going to make them happy. All men aim at happiness, says Pascal, right? So not only is, is happiness a matter of concern in our human thinking, but also in our Christian imagination, in our, in our understanding of faith. I'm going to read you a whole bunch of quotes here just to show you that this negative view on happiness that we've kind of grown up into in the, in the latter half of the 20th century, at least, was not always the way it was seen. A.W. Tozer said the people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, so all the way back in the 1600s, those, those guys were killjoys, by the way. So if you really want to prove a point, you take a Puritan and then you see how they're looking at happiness. But so Thomas Watson says this, who should be cheerful if not the people of God? He has no design upon us but to make us happy. God has no design upon us but to make us happy. What does he mean by that? Jonathan Edwards, again, the second, uh, I'm sorry, the first great awakening and one of these kind of pillars of American theology, one of the, probably one of the best American theologians that we have. Jonathan Edwards says this, and this is the 1700s, I'm sorry, uh, 1703 to 1758, is when Edwards lived. He says this, there's no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness. Again, this is a matter of human thinking. There's no one on earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness, and it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. George Whitfield, um, same time, the great evangelist, it is... Is it not the end or the goal of religion to make men happy? And is it not everyone's privilege to be as happy as he can? C.S. Lewis stole that in a letter he wrote to Sheldon Van Auken and says, it's the duty of every Christian to be as happy as he can be. Not to be happier than you can be, but to be as happy as you can be. And we get it all the way back from George Whitfield, the great evangelist. Anselm, St. Anselm of Canterbury, all the way back in the 10 hundreds. O wretched lot of man, when he hath lost that which he was made, he has lost the happiness for which he was made and has found the misery for which he was not made. What I'm trying to say here, the main point, our happiness is synonymous with our joy and it's a central matter of concern not only in our thinking, our human thinking, but in our Christian imagination. So here's where the argument comes in. Oh, but Ken... It's nice you've got some pretty little quotes that anyone can find on, on Brenny quote, um, but we all know that happiness and joy are different things. Um, happiness is a feeling, you know, and that's why it's bad, all those hedonists out there, all those, all those celebrities telling you you should be happy, and, and it's almost synonymous with sin, and we don't have anything to do with that happiness business. Us, us Christians, 
It's for us to seek joy. Joy, unlike happiness, isn't a feeling or an emotion. Joy is a state of being. And that is what the Christians are about. Now think about that for a minute. What's a state of being? When we're talking about human, humans, like what's a state of being? Like have you ever walked up to somebody and been like, hey, what's your state of being? Like, like it's some kind of fixed thing, like I'm an inert matter, like I'm at rest. I'm in motion, like that is my state of being. I'm in decay. I feel it. About 25 years from now, I'm going to be dead. I'm, it's my state of being, slow decay. Slow decay. Uh, what's your state of, what is the state of being? What is, it, what is it that we would say the fruit of the Spirit, let's put them up here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We'll just leave that up there. Um, what is it to try and all of a sudden take these things and take them out of the realm of emotion and just make them some weird kind of fixed state of being that's safe and, and can't go wrong? Like love, it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a state of being. Like it wouldn't make sense. Um, patience, man, my patience goes up and, and down and down and down and down and then up a little and then down, like it, it, it goes, peace, what's your state of being, peace? How does that feel? I don't know. It's not an emotion. <clears throat> goodness, um, boy, your goodness, it really blesses me. What do you mean? Well, it, it really blesses me that you're good and that I can see that exhibited in different things. Like it's, it's a wonderful thing, it blesses me. How does it feel to you? I don't know, it's a state of being, I don't feel it. You know, I mean, just such a strange thing. So here we go with this Christian thing of like, we're about joy, not about happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a state of being. That's a load of crock. It's a load of crock. It doesn't even make sense. The joy of the Lord, right? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I'm coming to the God of the universe, finding relationship in him because some really good news has happened that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, my relationship with the Father is reconciled and I'm forgiven even though I'm in a state of decay and even though things go down, down, then up, then down and I just can't figure out everything, right? That somehow I still get to have this relationship with God and God loves me. And out of that love and out of that relationship, I have this fruit that grows up in me and manifests itself as joy such that I have the joy of the Lord in me and I feel like rejoicing in this day and in this experience. I feel like coming and being with the people of God and rejoicing and celebrating and being glad and somehow this is, is my lot in life and it's a beautiful lot and, and I get to have that joy of the Lord whether things are really good or really bad. You see, my emotions aren't tied to my experiences but my emotions are still emotions. I mean, the beauty of joy is that even when everything external is really bad, my health could be really bad, my relationships could be really bad, that I still have the ability spiritually to go to God and say, man, oh God, the fact that you still have grace for me and that you understand that I didn't mean to mess things up um, and the fact that you'll receive me, like, and that fills me with such joy. In fact, that's the only good emotion I can hold on to in my life right now. Everything else makes me want to quit. This, like I could actually go in and, and join the people of God and worship and raise my hands and celebrate. I could rejoice because that pipeline, that relationship, that, that closeness, like actually drives me to be able to rejoice. It's an emotion. Now, it's an emotion that's very baptized and godly and beautiful emotion, joy is, that God intended for Christians to have, but it's synonymous with happiness. It wasn't until the last hundred years, and by the way, Oswald Chambers, who I love in his devotional, um, is, is probably one of the biggest reasons 
because he, on many of those 365 days, by the way, he didn't write that devotional. He passed away. His wife took his writings and turned it into that 365-day devotional. But many of those things, he pits this against each other. Um, If you go back even further, you had Immanuel Kant, and in his ethics, Immanuel Kant wanted to say that, how do we know when something is virtuous? And he wanted to say, we know it's virtuous based on the fact that you didn't want to do it. You didn't want to do it. So a virtuous action is, is one that like, what was right is this, you didn't want to do it, but you did it anyways. What beautiful character, what strength of virtue. It kind of almost makes sense, doesn't it? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, the problem becomes when you, when, you, when you look at Jesus and you go, well, what happens when you naturally desire and, and are motivated to the things you ought to be motivated to? What, what, what about when virtue is actually what you want to do? Like Kant's kind of whole little test falls away then, doesn't it? It's like, oh man, that guy, that sinner that did one mild good thing had more virtue than Jesus because Jesus actually wanted to do the things he, he, he was doing. So we can't really count that as virtue. He was inclined to it. So he did it by matter of course. He didn't do it by matter of reason or choice. He felt like doing it. His emotions led him into it. And, I, and I, I think that we begin to realize it's a very negative way of cashing things out. Or it's an, it's an easy way, but maybe a very limited or, or truncated view of looking at emotion. When we understand spiritual growth and maturity and that we're supposed to become like Christ, when the fruit of the Spirit is supposed to somehow grow up in our life so that this stuff happens more on the by and by, not like, oh, I hate love, but I'm gonna do it anyways. Like, no, I actually have loving feelings. I actually enjoy love. I actually want to be patient. I actually see this opportunity as a beautiful opportunity to be patient. Like, I relish this chance. Like, the more I begin to see that and get inclined into it, then, then I'm embracing these things, and Kant's little thing goes away because it's like there's no, it just happens naturally. And so C.S. Lewis really makes this argument in his book, The Way to Glory, and he says he thinks this negative, duty-bound understanding of Christianity crept in through Kant and his ethics, that we begin to relish the fact that we're willing ourselves into virtues. So you've probably been at a church like that sometime in your life where you get this sense that everybody's walking around and going, I'm a really good Christian because it makes me miserable, yet I do it. You know, aren't I great, except for in humility. You know, like it, it becomes this weird convoluted game where, you know, hey, get those kids to stop running around the foyer. Like they're having too much fun. Like this is serious business. They're being irreverent, you know, and it's like we begin to look very not like Christ. Like, you know, Jesus' disciples, the kids were running around. It's like, hey, you're interrupting the adults. And Jesus is like, hey, that actually looks like more fun. You guys are really a drag, but those kids, like, if you've ever hung out with Linda Van Voorst, that's like her whole attitude, you know? Like, I once was like, hey, would you ever want to do, like, I don't know, women's ministry or something like that? And Linda's like, why would I want to do that? Like, I get to play with the kids. Like, Linda is just like Jesus. Um, So Jesus is just, so the kids are coming, but you go to these places where we have this duty-bound understanding of faith, and it's like, I'm I'm willing myself to do all this Christianity and, and the longer I go, the heavier it gets. And boy, you look happy and, and, and you haven't even worked for it. It's not fair. So I'm gonna figure out a way to punish you in my mind because you need to earn your Christianity more than I do. You know, like you shouldn't have the joy of the Lord like without going through all the convoluted gesticulations or something like that. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Has any, am I the only one that's ever been to a church like that? Those, those churches can often be associated with spiritual abuse. I mean, spiritual abuse, where you come out the other end and have a really messed up understanding of God. Like, I'm scared of God. Prayer? I don't want to, you mean be honest with God? I can't do that. Because in my heart, like, I want to be happy. 
I can't, I can't come to God and let God see that. Like I can't, I don't even know, I don't, I don't know how to relate to God. Because he's just some inert state of being that doesn't feel emotion and doesn't understand my emotions. I, 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 I honestly don't think there are many more destructive things that have entered into Christianity and we think this way of seeing happiness, this, this negative view on happiness, we think that goes back all the way to Christ, and it doesn't. Let me give you a couple more bits that show that happiness and joy are synonymous. By the way, there's a whole cluster of words. Um, merriment, gladness, rejoicing, which is the manifestation of joy. Uh, joy and joy means to take in joy. Uh, there's other words, mirth. There's, there's, other, there's a whole lot of words that, that kind of the Bible would use synonymously to jump around the same kind of category. And when you get a cluster concept, you begin to f- realize there's something really deep there. And sometimes you use the word happy, sometimes you use the word joy, sometimes you use the word gladness, sometimes you use these different words, but they're really all pointing at the same thing, that when things are the way they ought to be, when it's healthy, it's vibrant. When a plant is healthy, it's vibrant. The green jumps out. The fruit is robust. When something is healthy, when you are healthy, you glow. My doctor, I've heard enough doctors say that when you're healthy, your skin and your hair, look, look, they glow. There's a look about health. Spiritually speaking, when you're healthy, there's a glow. We all know this when, when people are happy or have joy and it just is always there. They're positive. We notice it, don't we? Like, I mean, you could, in your mind right now, think of three, four people like that. I know a bunch like that. Terry Randstad's like that. My father-in-law is like that. Linda is like that. There's, there's people that we know that are like that. And when, when you have the right way of looking at things and holding them and, and living by faith, it's, there's joy, happiness, merriment, rejoicing, gladness. And these words go together. These biblical concepts go together. So let me read you a couple things on joy and happiness. Now, this is John Piper. Uh, who's a contemporary, John Piper says this, if you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. The New International Version, here's Esther 8.16, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. There's a thing in scripture where when you use the same kind of concept over and over, a synonym, it's called Hebrew parallelism. And what you have to do is you have to project yourself back into a, a day and age when, when paper was, a, wasn't even invented, but scrolls and things like that were things that the community possessed. You didn't really have them yourselves. And most people weren't even literate. And so your understanding of, of religion and, and Christianity comes as you're taught it orally, not as you read it in private, silent reading. In fact, silent reading in the Victorian age, like you can actually go back and read about how silent reading, what we know as sitting there and just reading a book, like silent reading is, is something that emerged and grew in history. It's a fascinating study. For a lot of history, reading was, what, uh, was, was often a very public Exercise, it's, it's crazy. But so when you're talking about who's hearing this, the original audience, you're talking about people that are listening. So what the writers of scripture did is they used this Hebrew parallelism. How do you bold or, or italicize something when you're not seeing it, but you're hearing it? And the way you italicize something for the ear is you restate it. You say it twice. You, you, you do it with a synonym. You repeat yourself. You go on and on. You keep saying the same thing until the church realizes you're modeling what you're talking about, you know, and, and people are like, I get it, I get it, I get what you're saying. So that's Hebrew parallelism, joy and happiness, gladness and honor. Zechariah eight nineteen. this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fasts will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. 
The New English translation, the NET, which is one of the more literal translations out there, says this in Psalm 92, verse 4. You, O Lord, have made me happy by your work. I will sing for joy because of what you have done. Psalm 32, verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Shout for joy. The synonym, this whole idea. Here's another Puritan, Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter wrote uh, a book called The, the Pastor. And uh, it's like one of these all-time classic texts on what the pastoral job or role should really look like. But Richard Baxter says this. The day of death is, too true, uh, is to true believers a day of happiness and joy. It's a juxtaposition of morbid and celebration all at the same time, but there you go. Happiness and joy used as synonyms. No distinction. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great English preacher uh, at the turn of the century, uh, said this, those who are beloved of the Lord must be the most happy and joyful people to be found anywhere upon the face of the earth. Charles Spurgeon is telling you, if you're a Christian, uh, and if, if you enjoy the love of the Lord, that you should be the, the most happy and joyful people anywhere on the face of the earth. That's not what I grew up hearing in the church. I didn't grow up in the church hearing that, okay, we got to come together, man, because this is hard sometimes. But we got, a, we got a goal here, team. Together, collectively, we are going to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. We're going to do that. We're going to love each other into that. We're going to bear each other's needs and burdens along that lines. We're going to fellowship so well. We're going to be so close, so united, that we're going to help make each other the happiest people on the face of the earth. And guess what will happen when we do that? What do you think would happen? People would take notice. It would look a lot like what Jesus said. Um, Don't hide your light, but show your light. Or when Jesus was saying a city on a hill can't be missed. In other words, a city on a hill, if you go to the old world where there's no street lights, okay, pre-electricity, and you had a city that had lights, you could see in a, a completely pitch black countryside, you could see that city from anywhere. Like, you can see it. You can go to it. You know there's refuge there. If we were the, the, the happiest people on the face of the earth, what would that mean? I, uh, again, the last hundred years, when we began to be all about, um, I once gave a sermon on wine. I won't retrace the whole thing, but, but it's a fascinating story when you look at wine in America. The, the prohibitionist movement was closely aligned with women's suffrage because early on, um, you had a lot of children, child and spousal abuse from men who would um, work all week and then go um, drink spirits all weekend, would come home and you had a lot of abuse back when not a lot of that could be tried or, or dealt with. And so when you were fighting for women's rights and children's rights, you looked at alcohol as a, a, a part of that problem. And you see that a fascinating thing begins to emerge as you get into the early 1900s that this aboli- um, the abolishment of alcohol, but what was called teetotalers. Teetotaler just means tea only. Teetotal. I am all the way tea. In other words, I'm not about moderation. I'm about no alcohol whatsoever. And so you began to see this kind of ethic come in um, and revival meetings and everything else in the early 1900s. And it's connected with with really the care and concern for women and for children. And then something really fascinating happens. World War I. Do you know that almost all of the beer in America prior to World War I was made by a certain ethnicity or a certain uh, nationality? Anyone want to guess? This is all free, by the way. I'm, I'm off track, but we'll, we'll go with it. 1034. Um, German. So what do you think happened during World War I when we were fighting the Germans? <clears throat> the sentiment turned against uh, those people that were the ones that were making this, and it actually really catalyzed 
this kind of um, anti-alcohol thing such that right after World War I, literally the next year, you saw this amendment passed where prohibition came into existence. And arguably, it's a fascinating thing, by the way. You can go watch the Ken Burns documentary called Prohibition. One of the single greatest things that turned public opinion um, back towards repealing prohibition was we had entered into the Great Depression. By the way, we didn't have income tax. Um, income tax? We didn't have income tax. Tim Harden's over here somewhere. He's a banker. We didn't have income tax back then, did we? We didn't have income tax. So it was sales tax and things like that that really generated the income for the federal government. So towards the end of Prohibition, uh, Anheuser-Busch himself writes this open letter to America and puts it in the New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, but puts it in one of the major newspapers and writes this argument for why we needed to repeal prohibition from an economic standpoint. I think something crazy, like 20 or 25% of America's revenue at one point was coming from taxation um, on, on the whole industry of, of, uh, of wine, alcohol, spirits, beer, et cetera. Um, it's fat. Where was I going with all this? Oh, but that prohibition ethic was really, was really tied to Christians really wanting to do good in the world. And then when, when it gets repealed, it's like, oh, the, the, you know, the liberals have won and we good people that were against, were against that bad stuff and for modesty have lost. And in a lot of denominations, not the Lutherans because they saw that as a victory, but, but in a lot of denominations, you kind of come out with this like, like man, that, that's, that's what the world does. That's what the world does. You know, but, you know, and we might have lost, but, you know, at least we were for modesty and moderation and all that. Forgetting the fact that the Bible doesn't teach abstaining. The Bible teaches moderation. Jesus himself brought wine to the party. Wine makes, makes the spirit glad, right? Like it's, it was, and it was a beautiful thing that allowed for water to be clean in a, in a day and age when when you could get Giardia or any of that kind of stuff through water. But, I mean, it was, it was a fascinating thing. The Mayflower even had allotments of beer for the kids. That's a whole different topic. But, um, but so, so here's the thing. I, when I was in seminary, I'm sharing too much. When I was in seminary, I went to Talbot. And about, about three months in, and I was with a group of students, and I was drinking a beer. And one of the students got really upset and said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? And he says, you signed a contract. I said, contract for what? So you signed a contract that you wouldn't drink. It's like, when did I do that? I didn't do that. And they're like, you signed to come to Talbot. You signed a, a student behavioral whatever. I'm like, really? When, when was that? They're like, there was a whole packet. I was like, well, I didn't read that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, not, I'm that kind of personality type that doesn't read contracts, which has got me in trouble a lot in life. But I was like, they, they said what? And they're like, yeah, the whole thing, you're not allowed to, like, and I'm like, well, that mean they meant on campus. Like, no, they meant while you're enrolled at the school. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me, you know? So I started looking into this, and sure enough, it was true. And, uh, and, and it was for the whole school, and then I began to find out that a lot of Christian schools, that's the same thing absolute ab abstaining from alcohol for the four years, five years, whatever it is that you're at school. And I was like, what? What's going on with this? And I looked into it even further. And basically, here's what I, I began to interact with faculty and administration with. I'm like, I'm a college pastor, and I really am passionate about education. I always have been. That's, you know, kilns and things like that. Like, I've always been passionate about this. How do you teach people wisdom? You don't do it with rules. You, you do it with discipleship. You do it with mentoring. You do it with, in a controlled environment, teaching them what moderation looks like. And, and if they make a mistake, helping them understand why that's not a good thing. And slowly, by the time they come out of college, they're actually a healthy, mature, wise individual that knows how to make good decisions. What, what the Christian college engine was producing was 22-year-olds that just couldn't wait to go get drunk. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, they weren't taught anything other than you can't. And so as soon as they could, like, that's the mentality. That's the idea. And so I started looking into it even further. And, and really, none of the faculty or administration, very few, actually believed in it. They were just saying, hey, we have to keep this because our, our, our booster, our, our donors, the donors that are the previous generation, we, we can't change this because they'll pull their money. They'll think that we're becoming liberal. And I was like, what? And so then while I was at Talbot, they changed it, that it only pertained to you if you're a student, but not if you were faculty, which became the most hypocritic of all things I've ever seen. So I started going to people I knew that were at my church, and they were really high up, like senior vice presidents and provosts and things like this. And so we would, at church, I'd pull them aside. I'm just like, so you have a 21-year-old full-time employee that's on campus 40 hours a week. You ha- and can do whatever the heck they want. And you have a 60-year-old ex- ex-missionary um, that, that only would ever drink wine at like a wedding or something like that, taking one class a semester part-time. <laughs> I was like, and they can drink and they can't. Like, what, what, what's going on? There's no logic there. And so what you begin to realize is when Christians are driven by legalism, logic gets sacrificed. When Christians are driven by legalism, logic gets sacrificed. When Christians are driven by legalism, happiness and joy don't even matter in the conversation. Think about it. When was the last time you went into court and the word happy or joy factored into to the, the, the proceedings in any kind of way? Well, but did it produce joy? Was it a good kind of joy? Did your joy ha- like cause anyone else pain or was it, was it just a healthy kind of joy? Like joy, completely irrelevant. Did you break a law or did you not? Did you know the law? I mean, I mean when legalism creeps into the church, happiness and joy don't even make sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right. But yet, biblically, they're synonymous. Yet, Charles Spurgeon wants to tell us we're supposed to be the happiest people in the world. Grace, grace is supposed to be the foundation of our faith. From Jesus forward, from that death on the cross, from his new command to love, from the relationship opened up by him where we get the Holy Spirit and able to come boldly before the throne of God, we're able to know not just that God is love, but where we're told to experience the love of God. Grace is the foundation of the church. And grace is nurture. Grace is watering the plant. Grace is bringing about the green and, and the sweetness of the fruit. Grace is the language of happiness and joy. Do you see the difference? So Blaise Pascal, so I'm gonna move quickly here. So happiness points us back to God. That's what I wanna say now. Happiness and joy point us back to God. Pascal, uh, the great mathematician, it's where we get, um, uh, what is it in gambling? It's um, the uh, probability thinking, probability. So the whole math around probabilistic thinking, which a lot of people think is the math that generated um, computer algorithms much later, but all this is beginning with this kind of Christian thinker and mathematician, Blaise Pascal. He was writing down a bunch of thoughts, was gonna someday write a book, but he died young, unexpectedly died young, and so he didn't have a book. But so they took all of his journals and they published it under the, the French word pensées, which simply means thoughts. And it's all these just kind of disjunctive little, little aphorisms or quotes or thoughts. Um, C.S. Lewis said it was the one book that he kept with him his whole life, read over and over and over and over again. Um, Pascal's influenced, as a Christian thinker, probably more other subsequent thinkers than, than many people that we, we could name. And he says this, what else does this longing and helplessness proclaim but that there was once in each person a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. We try to fill this in vain with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are there. 
Yet none can change things because this infinite abyss can only be filled by, by something that is infinite and unchanging. In other words, God himself. God alone is our true good. Um, Aquinas said, God alone constitutes man's true happiness. There's this idea, it's what I was preaching in college when that young student came up and, and got in my head, is we pursue God because God is good. There's no good outside of God. And basically, all of faith is boiled down into this simple proposition. I either recognize and, and am trusting that nothing else outside of God really makes sense. Now, I'm, I'm talking first, putting God first. Yes, graphic arts make sense. Yes, working out the gym makes sense. Yes, banking makes sense. Yes, there's a lot of things that make sense. But it's, God, as I serve you, as I follow you, as I understand the world through your lens, as I understand my vocation as a beautiful opportunity to use gifts and talents to make the world a better place or to provide for people or whatever it is, but all of it seeing God as chief as, as, as the thing that gives everything else meaning, that faith is either accepting that proposition and following into it obediently, or it's choosing to go a different way that says, somehow I'm gonna find some kind of good out there on my own. It's out there. I don't think God really cares about my happiness, so I'm not gonna trust him with my happiness. By the way, this is where most high school kids get derailed. They're told God doesn't give a rip about their happiness, and when they get alone, they're like, but I kind of give a rip about my happiness. So why would I trust that guy? He's not trustworthy. So they're telling me to trust him. But I know, because I don't trust adults, I know that I can't trust God. So I'm going to try to pretend. I'll call myself a Christian. And I won't do really bad things. But I'm going to go looking for my happiness. And, and by the way, in the end, that makes you absolutely miserable because you get neither just the sheer pleasure of worldliness that makes you feel empty. It's like cotton candy. And you don't get the peace and joy from God that comes in, in submission. You get nothing. You're, you're straddling the fence. It's the worst of all positions. But so the, the life of faith is really choosing to say, yeah, I, I trust God. Trust God. God alone constitutes man's chief happiness. If I'm gonna find goodness in this world, it's gonna come in serving God. I'm not gonna go look in my own way. That's really where, where, where faith comes down to. So the first thing is simply this. Faith points us to God. I serve God, I seek God, I wanna be with God, and somehow I, I want that because I know it's what makes me happiest, fills me with joy. Like I don't wanna sin because it would break this happy joy that I have of getting to walk with God and not feel the guilt of sin. So that pleasure you're offering me, yeah, it's, I don't wanna do it. It's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. So, so walking with God and the happiness that results only drives it more and more and more and more and more. The fruit of the Spirit, as we're with the Spirit, we want more and more and more and more. Like, wow, this is really changing me. I like who I'm becoming. I like how I feel. Not my state of being. I really like the state of being this is producing. <laughs> yes, Spock. Um, like, no, I, I like how this is changing me. Other people like me more. I remember when I became a Christian, people I hadn't talked to in two or three years at Clemson came and found me on campus. And they're like, hey, I heard you've changed your life. I'm like, yeah, I have. And they're like, that's really good. And what was going unspoken there was, <laughs> I didn't like you before. Um, and you seem different now. Like, I want more of that. Yes, God, can we do more? Can I read the Bible more? Can I get around people that, that only encourage me more? Can I have more opportunities to go demonstrate the love of Christ to other people? Can, can you teach me more? Can I have more? So the main point, again, our happiness is synonymous with our joy, and it's a central matter of concern not only in our thinking, but in our Christian imagination. The second thing here is that all of this comes from relationship. So the, the second part, so this is the fruit of the Spirit, and it immediately goes into this statement, which I find fascinating. I wrote about it in my last book. There's no law against such things. You're talking about a culture, the Jewish believers, that really understood law. 
they really got when, what legislation was, what boundaries were. They really understand that, right? This is okay, this isn't okay. And Paul's saying, listen, love, joy, peace, patience. There's never a time when those things are wrong. There's no legislation against those things. Now, you can do it foolishly. Like you can go sing songs to a, to a heavy heart, which, which isn't smart. You can be foolish, but the motivation of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, the motivation of that is never wrong. Those are the traits that ought to exist in a fully formed and mature person. And it's never wrong to be a fully formed and mature person. It's never wrong to be a Christ-like person. It's never a time when these things are wrong. Not only that, but if we go back to that verse, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, all of these are relational characteristics. In other words, you can't take and put one in a vacuum. Let's talk about love in the Petri dish. What is it? What does it look like? It's like, no, it's a relational thing. It comes from somewhere. I I experience it in relationship. When I manifest it, it's received in relationship. And even in my relationship with myself, it's like, I I like who I'm becoming. And I I need to learn how to give myself grace. Like, we have a relationship with God, ourself, others, and creation. And all of these are relational things. What would it be to talk about patience outside of relationship? relationship with myself and how I'm being willing to slow down or with other people that are moving slower than I am or might be annoying or being patient with how God is, is answering prayer maybe in a slower way than what I would have. Like this, this patience comes into relationship. It's a relational virtue. Faithfulness, relation, relational vir, uh, virtue. Goodness is a relational virtue. Self-control means my ability to actually govern myself. It's a part of my relationship with myself. All of these things are relational virtues. And so when we start talking about these traits as if they're just these abstract um, concepts that we're gonna define, and we don't think about them in terms of relationship, we cut them off from the causal chain that says, where do they come from, number one, what relationships bring these about, and number two, where do they go in relationship? And the answer from this passage is really simple. If you want to experience the emotions and the feelings of the virtues of Christianity, love, joy, peace, patience, if you want to experience the fullness of that gladness and happiness, if you want to be able to rejoice, it's because you stand in relationship with God. That fruit is going to be born out of the relationship that you have with God. What holds that relationship together? Faith, time, and obedience are ways that we anchor ourselves to God. And in this relationship, these things are, are birthed in me. They grow in me. They're nurtured in me. And where do those things go and what do they really matter? What do they speak to? They're not just for me. They're also manifestations into this world that affect and shape my relationships with other people. That's part of the beauty of them. When I have joy, when I have love, when I have patience, my relationships go up. The the quality of my relationships increases. And so as I'm in relationship with God and these things are being, being birthed in me, I'm also going into the world and seeking to bless or manifest these out to people, encourage them in others, and my relationships go up. So happiness, joy points us back to God. Our relationship with God drives this in us. And ultimately, a lot of the problems we face in life, a lot of the challenges that we deal with, really are rectified as we begin to exhibit and have these virtues in our relationships, being able to experience these emotions um, and feel these feelings. So let me just say our main point one last time with this extra point. Our happiness is synonymous with joy, and it is a central matter of concern not only in human thinking, but in our Christian imagination. And our greatest happiness and joy is to be found in our relationship with God and fueled by our relationship with God. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, um, says this. He says, every Christian is a theologian. Did you know that? That you are a theologian? Every Christian is a theologian. Simply by speaking of God, whatever you say, you become a theologian. If you have thoughts about and speak thoughts about God, that's theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Simply by speaking of God, whatever you say, 
you become a theologian. The question then is whether you are a good or bad theologian at what you are doing. When we say to people that joy is a state of being and happiness is a feeling that doesn't belong in Christian circles, we're doing bad theology. When we think correctly about the gospel and we put grace as a foundation, we're thinking well about theology. And what we speak to other people helps them understand God better. Um, a friend of mine was preaching a sermon just a couple weeks ago and says the amount of words you use um, this year uh, could write a dozen books. The amount of words you speak this year could write a dozen books. Depends on, I mean, some of us might write two books. And I know some people that are going to write 20. Um, I live with one that's going to write 20. Um, not Tamara. That wasn't a marriage joke. Um, what are you going to fill those books with? The fruit of the joy that comes from the Lord? With, with words about God that spur other people on to love and good deeds? Words that reflect your desire and passion to follow God and know that relationship all the more? Or your doubt and distrust that God really has your best interest at heart? And your real desire, if you would speak it, to try and find something else maybe on your own. You're going to write a dozen books this year. Let's start today writing some really good books. Some really, really good books. Let's be the happiest people in the world. Let's be a light that people can see no matter, no matter where they're at that attracts them to us where they know we are a place of refuge and safety and grace that makes them want to know the God that we serve. Father, it's a weird thing to say that you desire us to be happy. Even now, I wrestle with how funny that sounds until I think that as a father, I want my daughters to be happy. You are our father. We are your children. You created us for goodness. You created us for relationship. You want to redeem our lives. You want our joy and our happiness. And you want us to experience that. As awkward as it sounds, Father, I pray you would help us through your grace to warm up to the idea that you are a loving God. Not a tyrant. Not someone who stands off or distant. Not someone who's legalistic with us. But you are gracious, forbearing, patient, and loving God, not just for the person sitting to my left or my right. God, you are a loving God to me, and you want me to know your love. Help me. Help me to break down the barriers that keep me from experiencing that so that I might know the fullness of that love. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.